Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis 8 this morning, starting in verse 20. And we're going to go all the way through Genesis 9, 17. If you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 6. Just in single digits today, page 6, Genesis 8. The title of the sermon is Be Fruitful and Multiply. You can find uh, in the key words for our worshipers in training are require life and covenant. As I mentioned in the, the, the welcome this morning, uh, 50 years ago today, January 22nd, 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court gave its opinion in its Roe decision that no U.S. state could pass a law banning abortion. This summer, this past summer, the Supreme Court uh, sort of surprisingly overturned that decision in its Dobbs verdict, sending the issue back to the states. This is a good development, but there's still much work to be done in the fight for life, which we now rejoice the, the work is largely to be done at the state level. Today, Sanctity of Life Sunday, where we reflect on the value and the importance, the significance of life, and in particular, human life. Now, sermons on the sanctity of life typically focus on abortion. That tends to be the, the main subject to be discussed in these types of conversations. And that's rightly so. This Sunday exists largely in response to Roe versus Wade. But I want us to think a bit more broadly today about the sanctity of human life. I want us to consider some of the other challenges that face the church in 2023 and beyond. Admittedly, it's hard to know where to begin when you address some of these issues. But I want to start in 2015. In June of 2015... In its Obergefell decision, the Supreme Court opined that all U.S. states should recognize, that they would be required to recognize the existence and the validity of same-sex marriage. In 2020, the Supreme Court gave another opinion in its Bostock decision that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 applied to transgender individuals. And just over a month ago, President Biden's ironically named Respect for Marriage Act wrote Obergefell into law, overturning President Clinton's 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, which had banned federal recognition of same-sex marriages. There's so much more that, that should be said about the, the historical developments of these issues in our, our country. That is an extremely recent and broad brushstroke highlighting only some of the most significant public policy issues that challenge the church today. You're surely familiar with debates raging about bathrooms 
in our country and sports teams and kindergarten classrooms and counseling centers. I don't, I don't suppose I have to spend a large amount of time trying to convince you that we live in troubled and utterly confused times. In case anyone's worried, I don't, I don't intend to be graphic this morning, but I do intend to address, to address several cultural issues that pertain to the sanctity of human life that we must grasp as a church, that we must be prepared to discuss with one another, with the broader culture in which we live, and perhaps most importantly with our children. So, sort of fair warning about the the topic. Genesis 8 and 9, where we find ourselves this morning, speak directly to the sanctity of life. And they serve, these two chapters and this set of verses serves as a crucial reminder to us today of what God has designed. And so I want to read these verses, Genesis 8, 20 through 9, 17, outline them, and then we will get to work. God gives us this word, beginning in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. for For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. 
There are three main parts to this sermon. First, I I want us to see God's promise and God's sign in verses 20 and 22, 20 through 22 of chapter 8, and then verses 8 through 17 of chapter 9. So we're going to look at these book-ending realities, these book-ending realities to, of grace to the, prom, to the command in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So the first thing, we're going to see the promise and the sign at the ends of the passage. And then we're going to, secondly, focus in on verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9 to unpack the basic content of the command given here. And I want us to see how this command is flatly and high-handedly rejected by our present culture. And then third, I want to offer some concluding thoughts of application for how we are to live in the present day in light of God's grace and in light of God's law. So we're going to see His grace, we're going to see His law, and then we're going to conclude with some application. Look with me in the first place, in chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, where we see God's promise. And it's good and right that we begin here because we want to begin with grace. We need the grace of God. In Genesis 6, the world, we're told, had become so unbearably corrupt and detestable that nothing but the most severe judgment of God was left to be done. But God's judgment, however, as it so often is, was mixed and mingled with mercy. God provided salvation for one man and his family, and essentially a pair of every kind of animal that dwelled on the earth. And He gave to this man, to his family, to these animals, essentially the command to rebuild life on the earth. And the first thing that Noah does when he departs from the ark is he offers a burnt offering to the Lord. He recognizes that all that he has belongs to God. And he recognizes that just as was shown in brutal fashion in the flood, he recognizes that sin brings about death, but God shows mercy. This sacrifice of humility, dependence, and gratitude, we're told, is a, is a pleasing aroma to the Lord who makes this promise within his heart. He says, I will never strike down every living creature again because of man, since man's heart is evil. God commits here to relate to humanity by grace, promising a normal flow of, of life on the earth. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Summer, winter, day, and night. Despite the the egregious sins of men, God gives grace. So that's the promise, but we also see the sign, the sign of a covenant in particular in verses 8 through 17 of chapter 9. God covenants with the earth never again to flood the entire earth in verse 11. And the sign of that covenant would be the, the bow or The rainbow, which is meant to be a glorious display of God's gracious covenant faithfulness to all mankind, despite man's sin. And yet, presently, 
in our day for some time now, the, the rainbow has been turned into a symbol of high-handed rebellion against God and His goodness and His created order. You can find it on people's cars, in their front yards, on their social media profile pictures. Rainbow flags are flown above schools and churches. The White House is lit up with rainbow colors during the month of June. Gay Pride Month here in America, in the West. The rainbow is everywhere these days. And so is its message. The rainbow is not meant to be a sign of high-handed rebellion against God. But it is a sign of God's holiness. As we think of how He judges sin and what brought about the, the, the giving of the rainbow. But it is a sign of His grace. It is a sign of His love and His long-suffering. And so we should be clear. What has transpired in our culture is nothing less than a work of the devil. The devil takes what God has given and he twists it. He mangles it. He distorts it beyond recognition. The devil is the most unoriginal creature in the universe. He corrupts every good thing and our present day offers the rainbow as a prime example of this type of twisting. But let us not forget, brothers and sisters, God gives grace. So at the top, we must see, we must own, we must recognize and embrace the fact that God's disposition towards sinful humanity is nonetheless one of mercy, kindness, and grace. But look with me secondly in verses 1-7 through of chapter 9. And we're going to spend most of our time here. And it's worth, again, mentioning these these commands, this command here in verses 1-7 through is wisely set between two words of grace. You can't get to Genesis 9, 1-7, through and you can't leave Genesis 9, 1-7 through without running into the grace of God. So here we are in these verses. In Genesis 9, humanity is starting afresh through the salvation that God had wrought in Noah's life. And so, with that gracious foundation in place, God, as the covenant Lord, sets once again, as He had in Genesis 2, He sets once again commands before His subjects. Life-promoting commands. Much of what God says here in these verses is a simple reassertion of the commands given to Adam in the garden. But they do extend it. They do go beyond the commands in the garden because, well, because sin now exists in the world. God's command here can be summed up like this Have the utmost regard for human life. And we see this regard for human life enforced from three different angles in these verses. In verse 1, we see that mankind is to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, which is also repeated in verse 7. 
But secondly, we see that mankind is to, is to subdue the earth, to use the earth for human flourishing. And that's in verses 2 through 4. And then in 5 through 6, mankind is to, is to see human life as inherently valuable, sacred, and worthy of protection. And our culture here in the West protests. It is in a deep protest against all three aspects of this command. Consider three examples with me. Well, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that there is what we could call a transgender craze that has taken our culture by storm in the last few years. In Sunday school this morning, we talked about Carl Truman's two books, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self and Strange New World. Strange New World is just a shorter, more accessible version of Rise and Triumph. We talked about those and we we watched an interview that he did about this subject. I think they're helpful books um, to read. And and in in each one of them, he he talks about the phrase, I am uh, a man trapped in a woman's body. And he says essentially that in his grandfather's generation, that phrase would have been uh, essentially incomprehensible. Today, it is nearly incontestable. Unless you want to find yourself subject to legal action in some places or at least extreme social scorn. The LGBTQ plus movement has co-opted and pirated the real painful and agonizing struggle of broken people in a fallen world wrestling with their sense of self and identity. And they tell them that mutilating their bodies is the way to fix their identity crisis. To mutilate their bodies in such a way that render them essentially unable to multiply, to be fruitful. Activists use these sufferers, they use their pain to push a wicked agenda that I want to be clear is hell-bent on destroying the human race by controverting God's command to be fruitful and to multiply. God's original and current design for humanity is that we would be born, we would grow up, get married, have babies, who then grow up, get married, and have babies. Who then grow up, get married, and have babies. And thus fill the earth with God's image bearers. Of course, living in a fallen world means that not every married couple has the functional ability to have children. Infertility is a radically painful experience in this world and it prevents many couples from ever conceiving children. Or even if they do, they lose the children they conceive through miscarriage. It is it is an agonizing experience. But the nature of a man and a woman together in the procreative act, has the capacity to bring forth life. That is the way it is supposed to be. This LGBT movement wants relationships that cannot, by definition, do that. 
But that is what God commands here. Have children. The transgender craze exists as a direct protest against this command. Masquerading as concern for confused and broken people. And brothers and sisters, this craze is no longer somewhere off in the distance marching toward us. It is not merely on its way. It is here. It is now. We live in a post-Christian culture that celebrates and requires the celebration of men engaging in reprehensible acts with other men and women with women. And it embraces and celebrates the idea and again requires the embrace and celebration of the idea that boys can become girls or that girls can become boys. And that this should be done with or without the consent of parents through social, medical, and surgical procedures. This is the world in which we live. And young people, I want to be clear, the broader uh, secular culture of our day, politicians, Hollywood actors, social media influencers, most college professors at major universities, they hate you. They hate you with every fiber of their being. And they wish you were never born. And for those who do make it to see the light of day, they want to corrupt and destroy you. Rendering future generations less and less likely. But I want to be clear, I'll say it again at the end, but I want to be clear now. I love you. We love you. You are loved. And God cares deeply for you. But you are in a dangerous world. So that's one component of this command. Be fruitful and multiply, God says. Which admittedly here at RBC, I think we take that pretty seriously. But that's also one glaring example of our culture's utter rejection of it. Consider with me in verses 2 through 4 that mankind is to use the world for human flourishing. God says, eat the plants. Eat the creatures. Eat, eat anything that moves on the earth. Use it. Enjoy it. It's yours. Take dominion over it. Previously in Genesis 1, God told Adam and Eve that they were to take dominion of the earth. Extending His rule over every nook and cranny of the globe. And that idea is repeated here. And it's extended here. Because now we live in a, there's a, a sinful world and now there's, there's fear and there's dread. But nevertheless, humans are to see the earth as a gift from God and are to use it for their enjoyment, for their flourishing, and to use it in such a way that promotes His rule in all the lands. Does that sound like anything you would hear the powers that be say in our present day? culture of course not our culture saves the trees and kills the children climate activists make war against this command by demonizing those who seek to benefit from the fruits and the production of the earth right if you dare to eat meat or drive a car that runs on gasoline you are vilified by a rapidly growing percentage of western society Humans are a plague ravaging 
the, the world in their estimation, and everything would be better if we were just dead. Or at least severely prevented, uh, limited and prevented from, from taking dominion over the world. The world in their estimation should have dominion over us. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we have any, any right or reason or excuse from abusing the world. The world is not fundamentally ours. It is God's and we are stewards of it. We don't own it. And so we should respect the world, respect the created order. We should not abuse but use fruitfully the plants and the animals and the natural resources and structures of this earth. And not just for our own immediate gratification, not just for your pleasure in the the present moment, but for the flourishing of others today, tomorrow, and in a hundred years from now and beyond. But it does mean that the, the pecking order, in the pecking order of creation, humans come first. Our society hates that fact and seeks, it seems, at all costs to subjugate humanity to the lakes, rivers, beaches, forests, and all the animals that dwell therein. So this is the second component of this command. Take dominion of the earth, God says. But our culture rejects that too. A third component of the command is to protect human life. We've already said that for many children in our day, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing that they're even born to begin with. And those who are born are born with a target on their backs. Our culture wants to do everything it can to keep them from reproducing later in life. But make no mistake about it, Western society doesn't want it to get that far. The mutilation of the genitals of children is plan B. Plan A is to kill them before they see the light of day. Ever since the road decision was handed down by arrogant and wicked Supreme Court justices in 1973, we have murdered over 60 million babies in this country through abortion that we very clearly know about. The numbers could be much higher. And God, here in these verses, in verses 5 and and 6, He makes plain that murder, the shedding of innocent blood, is morally reprehensible. And it requires a reckoning. Murder is wrong. The taking of innocent life is an abomination before God. And it should result in retributive justice. A just society would place a premium on human life, all human life. Life from the the youngest among us to the oldest among us. Our present society places no inherent value on human life, especially those at the ends of the spectrum. Of course, today I'm speaking somewhat in, in generalities, but it is the truth. And I think it's important that we are clear that this is not something that plagues only one political party. This is not exclusively what you could call a Democrat problem. We saw this 
in glaring example with the, the recent support that many Republicans gave to the Respect for Marriage Act last year. Now, Republicans, while often speaking with the rhetoric, rhetoric that would at least seem to promote the dignity of human life, at least in certain instances, if we think back about the last 40, 50 years, what has actually been done to truly protect human life? What meaningful steps have been taken to defend it? Some here or there, but overall not, not many. And so I, I want to be clear, I'm not, I'm not here to condemn just one political party. I'm not here to shill for another. But I also don't want to pretend that at least on these particular issues we're addressing this morning, that one isn't worse than the other. But in the end, the answer doesn't lie in political parties. It doesn't lie in who your president is, who your governor is. It doesn't lie in who is in Congress or anything else. Where does our hope lie? That's the question that I want to turn to now in the, the few minutes that we have left. I want to consider that. What, where is our hope and how then shall we live? Well, first, we must remember this world is not our home. Jesus calls upon his disciples to live in the world, remembering that they're not of it. Peter tells his readers that we are sojourners and exiles. The author to the Hebrews reminds us that we await an abiding city not made with human hands. Paul tells us that we are principally citizens of heaven, not citizens of earth. So brothers and sisters, let us first and foremost commit to remember that the world presently, now, here, this world we see in all its brokenness and corruption is not how things will be forever. There's a day coming when uh, the universe will be at peace with God, flourishing in joy unto His glory. But that's not how things are now. But the question remains, how do, we, how do we get there? How do we live? What does God require of us? Do we stick our heads in the sand and wait? Oh, may it never be. You know, each of those references that I just made, the idea that we're made for, built for another world, they all exist in the context of a call to fruitful, productive living now. God's people are called to be distinct from the world, but are actively engaged with it. The prophets and the apostles speak boldly in the Scriptures against sinful words and actions of their cultures and their political leaders and their religious leaders. And they, they call on sinners to repent, to seek the Lord. Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawn in half for his preaching. Jeremiah was imprisoned and enslaved. The apostles were hunted down, imprisoned, and killed. And all throughout church history, we have examples of God's people speaking out against wickedness and oppression, even when it cost them their livelihoods and even their lives. Here in America, we have lived generally with tremendous amounts of comfort, ease, and freedom. But as the tide of culture continues to turn more and more to, to blatant, overt, outright wickedness, that freedom, that comfort, that ease is steadily going away. 
So the question for you is, what, what are you prepared to suffer for the sake of Christ? As we heard in, in the video, uh, the interview in Sunday school, what, are you prepared to out-suffer, to out-die the world? What are you prepared to suffer for Christ? What are you prepared to suffer for the sake of human life? Are you prepared to stand against the political, academic, and entertainment-centric war that is being waged against human life and flourishing? I'm not a, I'm not a big believer in the, the effectiveness of, of government, especially at the, the federal level, but, but that is sort of the beauty of our, our present political system as even as clearly broken as it is, the, in some way, in some real sense, the authority doesn't, it, it lies in, at the local level. So what, what can we seek to do here in our town, in our church, in our homes, in light of the things that are going on? Perhaps, if you want to talk about it politically, maybe should... Some of us consider running in local elections. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about running and winning a seat on a local governing board to promote righteousness and holiness in your county, in your city? Think about Rinkin and Guyton and Springfield and Pooler, Savannah, Effingham County, Chatham County. What would it look like if Christians who were willing to defend human life to the full, ran and won, seat, ran for and won seats of office. What, what might be done to preserve, protect, and value human life here? Well, I don't know what can we do about them out there, but here perhaps we can do more work. Now, of course, as a whole, the church must be a truth-telling outpost that proclaims throughout our culture the value of human life. Or else winning elections will amount to nothing. The, tru- the church must become and must continue to be a truth-telling outpost. And when that happens, might not God be pleased to transform the worldviews and the hearts of those in our community, at least if not beyond that? So that laws protecting children's lives and their private parts might not even be necessary, though we would still value those things. And then, like I said, not just politically or or ecclesiastically as a church, but what about in your family, in your home? You have a responsibility, parents, to your children. You have a responsibility for their lives, for their bodies. And so even if Rinkin, Georgia slides at some point into abominable practices celebrated publicly, even worse than they are now, what about you? What about us as a church, what about us in our homes? Are we willing to protect children from the world and to prepare them one day to engage with it in a meaningful way that pleases God? Are we, are, are we willing to go to jail or worse for, for Christ's sake if it should come to that? 
Again, children, I would talk to you earlier. Young people, I want to address you again here specifically. This, as I said, this is a dangerous world. And there are people, thousands of people, whose life goal seems to be to ruin and destroy yours. And we want to keep you safe. But we can't keep you in the dark. And we don't want to keep you in the dark. We want you walking in the light. So we are seeking to equip ourselves in the fight for life, the fight of faith. And so as we do that, please know you can ask questions. You can share your concerns and your struggles. There may be times when your parents have to say something like, I can't explain that to you now, but I, I will one day. As best I can. Young people, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, trust your parents. Trust the Lord. Trust us as we follow the Lord. And would you look to Jesus? Would you trust Him to love you, to care for you, to provide for you, and to equip you for living a, a, a righteous, meaningful life in a world that despises righteousness and meaning? And to anyone, child or adult alike this morning, if, if you don't know Jesus in this struggling and fallen world, may I commend Him to you. Would you believe in Him? Would you forsake your claim on this world and receive the citizenship of heaven? Would you look to Jesus who died for sinners so that sinners through faith might be saved from the wrath of God? In Genesis, we see that it was only those who were in the ark that were saved from the flood. Well, so too, it is only those who are in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of what is promised in the ark. It's only those who are in Jesus Christ who shall be saved from the wrath that is to come on a sinful world. There is a reckoning coming. And we all desperately need to be saved on that day by the blood of Jesus. And so I commend him to each and every person here this morning, starting right here. And I want you to hear the invitation to believe in him now. If you've not ever done that. And if you have, believe again and again and again. Trusting him to keep you from this day forth and forever.